In this episode, I get to sit down with two researchers from NYU and talk to them about their research project on Dungeons & Dragons and tabletop gaming in general, so stay tuned. If you're enjoying these episodes, first I want to thank you for your listenership. Your support means the world to me. And for those of you who are just tuning in to the podcast, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and after this episode, leave us an honest review. Hopefully it's a five-star review, but leave us an honest review. Your reviews actually help me um, gauge what you all want in the audience, but your reviews, especially when they're a five-star, help the channel grow. So be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave that review. Three, two, one, and I am, we're live. Y'all, I am really excited to share with, um, with the audience, with my guests today, um, Joanna and Ravel. Ravel, am, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, you are. Perfect. Um, these are some awesome individuals that are doing some great things in the D&D and really in the tabletop community. Um, Joanna, Ravel, do you mind introducing yourself to the audience? Of course, yes. Uh, I'll start. So my name is Joanna. So I am no one's Raven and not on the Instagram. So I make uh, on the part time. I make uh, dice related jewelries, <laughs> and I make handmade dice. But um, I, professionally, I I do um, I do educational technology. Okay. And then one thing, what I do, uh, I've been working on my thesis is, uh, uh, I mean, the games for learning program and NYU. And what I do is I, I work on a project about D&D research. So what this, yeah, what this research really involves is a, a kind of finding out how people really play and learn from each other collectively through like creating this shared fantasy. And mm-hmm. then uh, we're trying to figure out if there's any difference between how people play in person and how people play online. And also like what kind of the tools, creative tools that current uh, tabletop RPG players use and uh, what is the next big thing that would revolutionize the industry. So that's kind of what my research is. And then since COVID, uh, I started my research you know, last, October, last October in 2019 uh, before COVID. And then uh, we surveyed a bunch of people and then suddenly COVID-19 happened uh, that really changed the industry. And then we, sure. we found that uh, we need to redo this research completely. So we redid the research and talked to a hundred uh, dungeon masters about their experiences and captured mm-hmm. a lot of like, uh, you know, like in terms of like how people play and what tools they use, what's their dream map, that kind of data. So uh, I'm really happy to be able to tell you guys more about this data later today. That's, that's, and you know, I remember when I got in contact with y'all, you know, listening to that and learning about how you're doing, you know, this actual date, this, this actual research that may help. And really, you know, my wife's an educator. So I think it's gonna, I think there's a lot of benefits. Obviously, you know, I, I wouldn't have started this podcast. I wouldn't have started this channel if I didn't think that D and D and tabletop gaming was a positive thing in society and in our culture. You know, uh, my cult, I mean, for the, for most of y'all that know of the audience, um, you know, my undergraduate is actually in history uh, from a cultural, a cultural historian. So it's, I kind of look at the cultures of different societies 
and see what bonded people together. Um, so it's funny how we're talking about this because, you know, a lot of successful cultures, historically speaking, had a communicate, had a style of communication, a sense of identity. And I feel like tabletop gaming does that. Mm -hmm. For Definitely. sure. Yeah. Reval, you on? <laughs> Yeah, that's actually a great um, build upon for me. So my name is Raval and Joanna and I met at NYU in a narrative um, game design course. Cool. Um, I am also studying games for learning and digital media design for learning okay. at NYU. Um, and my background actually is in human computer interaction, which is now known as user experience and psychology. Sweet. So I am considering building upon this thesis project of Joanna's and Joanna's research to looking at how um, role playing and psychology go hand in hand and how you can look mm. at it almost from a therapeutic lens um, in terms of, um, you know, enabling a sort of uh, rehab experience almost in playing and so to me the cultural angle is interesting but also the ideas behind like player agency and acceptance and just um you know overcoming social anxiety and sure. all kinds of things like that are just very very fascinating to me um and we've spoken to a variety of people ranging from you know professional dms to like you know, just newbies starting out and hobbyists. And mm -hmm. I personally am like very new to the D&D &D world. I've sort of um, been on the outskirts of it um, for several years now, but I was always a little too intimidated to become like a true player. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if this was uh, at the time, um, you know, everyone I knew had been playing since they were little. So it was hard um, to kind of break into those types of games and there were less newbies around me. Um, but Joanna has been kind enough to facilitate my entry into this world. And so I think the mix between the two of us brings a very interesting perspective to the research, what with her focus on educational technology and her deep, deep understanding of the community with my newcomer, um, approach uh, blends well for like a lens with which to analyze the research. That makes sense. And I love how you're bringing the psychological aspect to it because I have seen, and now I, I don't, obviously I don't have the data. Y'all have the data. Um, I've seen how some people have actually been able to use this as therapy. They've been able to use this because it's a safe environment to role play something that perhaps, you know, they're war veterans maybe they're victims of something and they're able to role play of not a, not an exact, you know, similar thing, maybe for like, you know, uh, war veterans who are, who are, who have service related PTSD, like my dad, he's a veteran, he has service related PTSD. And I actually have tried to talk to him saying that I think Dungeons and Dragons would put him in a safe environment in which he could role play certain things and start to find healing. No, it might not be a replacement for therapy, but it can go in, I personally feel it can work, you know, hand in hand with therapy. So I'm really glad that you're bringing that aspect too. Um, actually, some of the questions I asked a couple of my friends, cause I told them, hey, I'm having these awesome researchers here. And one thing that they wanted to know was, you know, so y'all started this date, started researching in 2019 is there one piece of data that kind of like almost shocked you 
about uh, tabletop gaming? Like, was there one common um, piece of data that you were all, you know, kind of reviewing and being like, wow, this is pretty shocking. I didn't think this was going to be a common or a similarity between Dungeon Masters. Um, there's so many interesting um, data, but I think one is, um, let, let me show you something. Sure, <laughs> I, for sure. You allow me to, oh, it says uh, I cannot share my screen. So if you can. Yep, help I will me, I able to do that. Sharing. All right, I think um, now it's on multiple participants that can share. You, yep. you can all share now, I believe. All right, great, thank you. Um, no problem. Oh, I just want to quickly share the screen here. And for the audience listening, the, um, you can actually, you will be able to view yeah, the um, video presentation of this, um, <laughs> but this is going to, I'm already looking at it and it, it's, y'all are going to want to look at the video as well as the audio. It's going to be good. Yeah. But um, for those who are look, uh, listening in, let me explain what the, we're seeing right now is uh, this chart about in-person and online um, online uh, percentage, how many people uh, place in person, how many people place online. Mm -hmm. So this, uh, what we found is that um, this is back in October 2019, we okay. found that 45% of people has never played an online session before. Mm. And uh, only a very little uh, amount of players, 7.8% of players played online exclusively. And okay. then most other players who has played online were more just a occasionally here and there play online. And then during the COVID, this, this data is first two weeks into the COVID, we did a new survey, mm -hmm. about 50% of that 45% that never played online. So this is about 20%, let's say 25% of the whole population starting to switch to online play. Okay. And uh, now, when we recently did a survey, almost 99% of people play online. Wow. Or have at least played one online game to try it out. So, so that's a very shocking, like how quick, um, like you can think about the D&D community adapt to online play. For sure. It's like, wow. No, I just like in person. I'll never play online. To eh, I'll try it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so I think that's a very interesting, shocking data uh, for us to discover. Is that the, you see the amount of people adapting to online? It's almost like a hockey stick adaption, just like from no online player to very a lot of online players online. And also, uh, the reason of why people play online has changed significantly. Before, if you ask people why do you play online. It has always been a friend moved away. So mm -hmm. I have to play online if I want to keep playing. It's a long distance relationship kind of mm -hmm. idea. And then now if you ask COVID, it's then the number one reason why I play online. COVID happened. So <laughs> I have to play online now. Or they join some kind of online uh, Discord group or Facebook group yeah. or any, anywhere they, they found an online community to play with online friends. So that uh, we also found that's something very new is that people, how people transition from playing in person only to play online just within the couple of weeks, four weeks into COVID. Interesting. Yeah. That's, Rival, yeah, that's really cool data because I knew that we all, I think we all knew COVID, you know, when it's, when it became what it became it was going to shift our lives completely, right? It was going to, it was going to make people 
you know, if they have the ability to work from home or, you know, learn from home, whatever it may be, but gaming being a big part, we were always going to have to do it, you know, at home online. So it's crazy to think that it went from 45% to 99%. Yeah. And I, I think like, just to add on to what Joanna's talking about, like not just shifting to online play, but also there was a shift in frequency of play. Okay. Um, in particular, um, we found that um, people were playing in person one to three times per month with three to eight hours per session. And now online, they're now playing one to three times per week, not per month and two to five hours each session. So considering they don't have the traditional means of going out and doing, you know, other things that competed for their attention in pre-COVID times, um, during COVID, now they're looking for, you know, other outlets. Um, and mm. oftentimes that comes back to D&D. Um, and so uh, this is what we've seen um, that people are playing more frequently um, for shorter durations. Wow. I mean, I wouldn't doubt it. <laughs> like, I don't doubt it because when you're, I mean, I know for myself, for the, you know, for the first bit, my gaming group played more. It almost, we played more than we had ever played, you know, because we would play every two weeks and we played probably two, three times a week for hours. So I, I'm not surprised at that, but it's crazy <laughs> though, that it's on that, how, how things have shifted, right. You know, in person, which actually, that's one of the questions I got from uh, from uh, one of my audience or one of the audience members, um, is about reverting back to, will, you know, will there ever be a, a a time where we'll revert back to, you know, physically playing together? Um, and I don't know if your data shows or the probability of that, but I mean, with online play, it feels like you can get more sessions in and you can play more because it's convenient. Yeah, um, I, and then I think there's also a commune, like a lot of people used to need to like go to a place one hour away from their home to play. Mm -hmm. Now they don't, and that really saves some time. But True. to answer your question, when we ask people this, do you see yourself playing in person again once the COVID is over? Many of them still say yes. Okay, so awesome. So they do feel they will go back to in-person play, but they also realize that online, can be much easier. So what the, the result is, people usually say that uh, probably some from, some of my games will go back to in person. The okay. ones with close friends because we want to interact with them in person. But mm -hmm. some games will probably re remain online because we found that's great. So, so, you know, so I think it really opened to opportunities. More people before is like didn't even want to try online. That's a, it's a willingness to try. And now they try, they realize it's not so bad. It's actually pretty good. So some of their games will remain online, but the ones with close friends that they definitely want to see them in person will go back to in person. Now is the, like, are they, for those in the survey that, you know, said that they were, you know, gaming online, did they have a specific form of technology that they were using or was it pretty much, um, just very general besides discord and besides, you know, I know discord is a little bit more popular, but did they yeah. go into specifics? I'm very glad you asked because we have very detailed data about that. Awesome. <laughs> uh, so here is a chart. Uh, yeah, yeah. This loads every time I try to 
Yeah, no worries. No worries. But here is a chart um, of uh, the tools people use to play. Okay. So uh, it's very interesting. You see three big boxes. Uh, mm -hmm. One is real-time communication tools. One yeah. is game mechanic tools. One is math creation tools. So those three tools are the people usually use when play online. They use one tool from each box, or one, at least one tool from each box. Okay. So for example, they'll play either on Discord, Zoom, Google Hangout, or Roll20 for their communication. Mm -hmm. And then they'll use Roll20, D&D Beyond, or Discord bots for game mechanic tools. And then okay. for um, map creation tool, either they use low-tech tools like pen and paper, digital painting, or improvised tools, or may-tech tools like Roll20, Incarnate, Wonder Draft, Fantasy Ground, those kind of tools, or mm -hmm. some high-tech tools that uh, still develop in the more developing stage. Gotcha. Yeah. So, uh, so this is kind of like how people play now is they, they use multiple tools. Even Roll20 claims to be the tool that has all, uh, all features. People still use three different tools to play. Yeah, I've, I've, noticed, I've noticed that Roll20 advertises, hey, we have all three. You know, it's better, you know, one-stop shop. That's what I've heard the claim to a lot of people using Roll20. And they still, <laughs> they still don't. They like... Yeah. You know, I, I personally like Incarnate because I like the, the ability to create maps and just the ease of, right, the ease of creating a map. Uh, shout out to Incarnate. Um, you know, I, I love it. So I have been able to, you know, showcase that still. And, you know, I wouldn't use Roll20 necessarily just because I, why, you know, why would I use it or why would I showcase it when I can take something from Incarnate and just, you know, send it to my friends who are playing, you know, in that session. It's, it, my game's a little bit different, but. No, but it's very interesting that you bring this up because mm -hmm. um, this brings us to the point of like how satisfied people are with their online D&D tools. And mm -hmm. I believe Joanna has a slide that um, shows this. <laughs> so roll 20 um, on the slide, you'll see that the lowest satisfaction is actually roll 20 which also happened to be the most common tool used. Um, and the satisfaction rate was about 20% um, overall. So um, it's a powerful tool, but some of the anecdotes we heard, um, which are listed on the slide, talk about how it is unclear how I can accomplish tasks without searching hours of YouTube tutorials, or wow. the interface is not at all agreeable. I just wasn't fluent enough with it to have fun using it. I had to give up on it. Maybe I'm just technologically challenged. I feel I would hate myself using it. Wow. So, um, you know, concurrently though, um, those who were satisfied with it were interested in the interactiveness of the map, the dynamic mm -hmm. lighting, and had definitely put in many, many hours in order to master it. So at that point, mm -hmm. they were so invested that, um, you know, they were like, may as well use it. And so some of what we heard was that the map feature is still lacking, but they love the dynamic lighting with the premium version. And, you know, I invest hundreds of hours. Um, and, you know, why would I, why would I change now? Um, and so that brought us to the, the, the tool that provided the most satisfaction. So the highest satisfaction tool, which was more uncommon, was Incarnate. That had a satisfaction rate of about 100%. Wow. Um, 
I don't know if your audience is familiar with incarnate if you speak about it a lot as I, a tool you use. I am an incarnate um, fanboy. I am mm -hmm. a proud I am a proud member of the incarnate fanboy club um, because I just think as it you know we're all technologists, right? Everyone on this in, in this episode, we're all technologists of some sort and at some level. And one of the easiest things, and we all know this, if you want to make good technology, it really should be user-friendly. And yep. Incarnate really provides that user-friendly ability um, while actually creating material and creating maps. Very simple. It's just creating maps. But it's extremely easy to do. And mm -hmm. the material that you're able to do it with is also easy to use. Right. So the next highest satisfaction um, which were also coincidentally the commonly used tools were pen and paper and improvised tools. And wow. those have satisfaction rates of about 80%. So something that is important to note is that like low tech tools are much easier to make DMs feel satisfied mm -hmm. because often the DM enjoys the creation process, the kinesthetic aspect of physically putting things together and building. Um, and that was something thing um, that I think Incarnate tries to capture somewhat in their tool, but um, still pen and paper um, are quite high in terms of their satisfaction. Yeah, it is satisfaction is also a very interesting sign. We found what we found is the sur survey data sometimes is not as reliable as interviewing in real person, because a lot of time it would ask you, uh, how satisfied are you with the current tools you use? Some people wrote, using Roll20 may say, like, yeah, pretty satisfied. And then you, you, if it's a survey, you would just mark satisfied. But uh, when you dig deeper, it's like, are you really, is there any parts you want to improve on? And then they give you a whole list of complaints and they, what they yeah. don't like and that they would like to have. And they're like, yes, but you said satisfied, but your, your description does not match what you said. So yeah. that's sometimes uh, with research data is we, we also try to really figure out what's the, was the deeper root of like that satisfaction. Mm -hmm. I think that's something uh, interesting what we're doing here. Uh, it's beyond just a simple survey, right? Because if you just yeah. have the survey data, it's a very different representative data than what people are actually saying. Now, just for the audience out there listening to this, um, obviously this is unbiased data. This, you know, incarnate didn't you know, authorize or, or not authorize, excuse me, didn't. We're not paid it. by any yeah, of this. Yeah. And I just want to, and I, I want to say that because a lot of times, you know, I, I, I won't lie. Like in, I, I was using incarnate before they reached out to me and said, Hey, like, I would really love for you to like, you know, talk about this more and to really kind of be one of our, um, one of our cheerleaders type of thing. Right. And I was like, yeah, I would be honored to because when, when I used the product beforehand, it was easy. Like I said, I loved it. So that's, I want to give a, I kind of want to say that disclaimer because a lot of times people in the audience, um, and we've all gone through that, we wonder, well, are they saying this because they were paid by it or no? You know, this, this is, I, I want to, yeah, like, yeah. I just kind of want to say that Non-sponsored contact content and research. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. No, nobody paid us to say anything good or bad about any of this too. So this this is just pure good. research. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. So um, uh, I, I don't know if you, you are interested in like, you know, what drives, what's people's preparation time is. 
I am. I, I, I'm, I am because that is a big debate. A lot of people, um, I've posted about it because I feel like we get too, I feel like mentally we put those barriers and we put a lot of pressure on ourselves. whether you're a new player or a veteran player or a new DM or a, you know, veteran DM. Mm -hmm. So I, you know, I think preparation and, and, and all that is a little bit dependent upon the individual, right? If you, if you're working a 60, 70 hour work week and you only have two hours, you know, to prep for a game because you're taking your own lunchtime to do it. That's what, you know, that's what you can do. So yeah, I would love to listen to any data that you have. um, Let me me tell you what the data told us is that uh, newbie or experienced uh, jobs wise, uh, how many free time you have, none of that mattered. Uh, that much it always matter but none of that might matter as much uh, when it comes to dm preparation time as dm's personality okay uh, so that's a very interesting another i would say my second most surprised funding uh, over this whole research uh, i had a lot of fun with this is uh, we we kind of had to categorize people's personality somehow and then we decided to just call them improviser planner or hybrid mm-hmm so um, as, a, as an improviser, uh, basically uh, improviser means that you spend less than 10 hours before a campaign starts to prepare for it. And then each session you spend less than one hour to prepare it. So those people are improvisers. So basically they usually do things on the fly and they change a lot mm-hmm. of things in games. And then uh, what their desire and need when it comes to mapping would be very different or tools would be very different than the, those who are planners. That makes and sense. And then, yeah, the planner people uh, spend about 80 to 320 hours wow. before uh, a campaign start. They, they're the crazy people, you would say, like they write extensive notes, dialogues, and then uh, signs like what would happen at mm-hmm. each place. And then uh, they spent at least five hours uh, before each of the session. So basically on average, we also found that it's about like one to two hours per hour of play. So if you were playing for four hours, they spent eight hours preparing for it. Wow. So um, and the hybrid are the people more (laughs) more in the middle ground. So they're like spent about 10 to 80 hours before the campaign start and basically spend about 1.5 to five hours before each session. Yeah, that's me. So, <laughs> so you are the typical hybrid uh, yeah. person the, you know, within the normal norm. Uh, of, I think you should preface this by saying that um, this data set included people that do this professionally mm-hmm. and get paid for this as their full-time job. And so in those cases, they often put in more prep time when you consider the fact that they're doing it for work purposes. For sure. But some people, some people did put in like crazy amount of time considering it was just for purely entertainment. So yeah. um, it varied. Now, yeah. when you say entertainment, is it, were they streaming this? And like, you know, it's technically. Oh, no. Uh, okay. I more of the hobby. Well, it just means hobby. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. I just want to clarify because in my head, I thought, well, you know, I know plenty of people who, I mean, my own dungeon master, he, we stream our games because we enjoy it, but I know that he puts a lot of work into it. So yeah. I don't know if, you know, that makes yeah. sense though, if it's, this is part of the hobby. 
show, showing the game publicly definitely affects the time of preparation for sure. Okay. Uh, but what we do think mostly is really, even among professional DMs, it's really their personality. Some people still gotcha. plan only two hours. Some people spend like hundreds of hours just to get, you know. So it it's really depends on what do they consider a planner or do they consider themselves more an improviser? Yeah. Ah, I get that. Yeah, that so, so you can see that our, our community is really, a lot of people identify themselves as improviser. They believe mm -hmm. they're improviser, but they also do some planning. Uh, the yeah. true improvisers are not as, uh, you know, like about 30% of our community. And then uh, about 21% of our community are actually planners. Okay. Yeah. Wow. That's, that's, I, that's something that I feel like, you know, <laughs> pre-COVID, you know, when you'd go to the game store and you'd talk to your friends or your, you know, people at the game store, like, oh, are you planning this session? And you kind of get the, you know, it now kind of quantifies that, right? Yeah, so so now you can listen to your friends' conversation and ask them, how long do you plan for a session? <laughs> they don't know if you're an improviser or a planner. That's right. <laughs> or you're, you're a hybrid. Yeah. Um, so we, we learned that a lot of our people we interviewed, um, or this is just based on interview, not based on the survey. Mm -hmm. um, the survey is a, is a different set of data, but for interview, a lot of people identified themselves as a homebrew DM. And then I also see how popular it is. People want to create their own content just without restrictions. And then, uh, then some percent, 30% uh, are like, uh, sorry, 30 people are doing module and then uh, some people do both. But okay. most majority of the community really does a lot of homebrew. Yeah. And, yeah. Sorry. No, 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 um, go for it, go for it. We should, we should just preface like these interviews were, um, conducted over Zoom and um, they were like, oftentimes we said they would be 15 minutes, but we all love this community and love the people because they're all so welcoming and friendly that often each interview was upwards of an hour. Wow. And um, so we have over a hundred hours of data. Wow. Um, overall, I would say, Joanna, is that close to accurate? Yeah. Yes. Yes, <laughs> that's accurate. So, that's, um, that's, that's what this is based thorough. on. That is yeah. thorough to say the least. <laughs> like, and, and, and I think that with homebrew, you mentioned something about the freedom of creation, right? I think that um, a lot of people want to have that just because modules are fun. I run, you know, a couple and I would, you know, my rule is that in, I have a multiverse theory in my world where, you know, the game that you're playing in is, is your material plane, right? But if you want to go to Eberron or if you want to go to any of these bigger kind of modules, like it's a type, you have to have some like, tr you know, some multiverse travel, some uh, sort of speak, right? You know, it's kind of something to fill in the, the blank, but why do you think people want to homebrew more than run a module? Um. I don't know. We, we haven't really asked that question. So it, it would be interesting to know for our next research. Okay. <laughs> but, okay. Uh, but I, we, I do think like the creativity is a huge part of it. It's like we want to have the freedom, right? Uh, mm -hmm. We talk about the player agency a lot in our research, but I think we should also talk about like the DM agency that like what they, do they want to do? Uh, how do they want to build their world? A lot of time it's like they want to build a world that kind of fits 
the current situation to solve a problem to solve something for mm-hmm. for the players or just purely have fun so so yeah. it's really um it, it's really depends on it's that agency that freedom that people have but right? i also i also think Juliana, like we have yet to analyze this part of the data uh, but um anecdotally from what i remember interviewing people in june um partially some people that were more into the um the published modules were also sometimes newcomers but Uh i don't know enough about how the data correlates um but often um you know in some cases if they had some familiarity from friends or family like they were more adventurous with going you know you know slightly improvising with like the idea of homebrew but mm-hmm. oftentimes you, you heard either that they liked that the published modules were very organized and laid out for them. And so that like aligned with their interests and needs, but other times it was also because they were newer to the game and they felt more comfortable with that format. Um, we definitely found we, new, yeah, we definitely found new players really uh, enjoy structure in their game. Mm-hmm. So that's another sign that would help them to actually, because D&D is such a free play, free imaginative game. And then yeah. sometimes where some people are more need structure in their life, right? Need structure. Sure. So it depends on the type of players again, but uh, some new, especially for newcomers, uh, new players, we think it's, it's a good sign that they are kind of like having a sense of structure. So that's for And sure. I can speak as a new player also just personally, subjectively, like Joanna and I were talking about this as she was introducing me to new like one shots that like, I tended to have more fun when I had some more structure from the DM and from the game itself um, because mm-hmm. I felt like supported. But again, I don't know how much that is um, my personality versus how much that is um, <laughs> being new to this world. So that's something that I think we'll have to explore a little more. I could see that. I mean, when I, I mean, when I started playing like World of Warcraft, who my, you know, my best, one of my best friends and, and my DM. Um, of my game, he was walking me through it. And if I didn't have that guidance and the way, you know, Blizzard kind of created that structure for new players of, you know, you start in this place and you start kind of going on quests and doing stuff like that, it's, it can translate to, you know, D&D. If you have that new player and hence the reason Adventures League was, I think, popular with some of the newer players, I mean, at least for a time, you know, it provided that structure. So I, I, I think that there's a lot, there's a lot there that could be explored, um, not only in D&D, obviously, since we're speaking specifically about that for sure, but in other games and other tabletop games, even other, you know, MMORPG, even video games, right? There's always that famous tutorial kind of first section of how you learn how to play the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then um, I brought up this slide here is uh, if mm-hmm. anyone wants to know a bit more about how people actually home, oh, in the home cool. campaign really separate their times when they prepare with the DM prepare for, for their game. So uh, for example, we see that um, about 25% of the time people are using this to build their world. And then uh, 42% of the time people are creating their maps and then uh, about 7% creating, like kind of creating their characters and mm-hmm. then uh, 19% creating their encounters. And then uh, what we didn't encounter before is like how much uh, people enjoy also creating music or finding music oh, cool. for their game. So about 5.8% of people, uh, I mean 5.8% of their time, they're actually searching for music. 
Interesting. And I, I, um, what is, and, and I'm, I'd be very curious to see, um, did they, did they talk about the type, like, you know, with, with music as an example, did they talk about the technology or what their kind of their system of finding new music or was that a little, was, did they leave that general? Um, we, I'm sure we have some detailed data here. I can't think about on top of my mind. Yeah, no, no, for sure, but, for sure. But yeah, they're, they're definitely talk about how, how important music is to the gameplay and uh, how they, because um, a lot, a couple of people we talked to actually like uh, they're sound engineers. So that's like their oh. professional job. And then they, they, they created their own music for the campaigns. Oh, that's and, so cool. Yeah. Yeah, and some people just like search for music for hours, the free free downloaded music. Or uh, I I know there's a there's a there's another website that does that, right? Give, give you music playlists, and then I know uh, Discord uh, also does that. Have a bot that you can put pl music playlists queue okay. in. There's a lot of different technology people use, and then uh, it, is it called Soundspare or something? Uh, Siren Oh, <laughs> Sirenscape is it? Sirens, yeah, yeah. Okay. Sorry, I, I, I need to go back to the data to actually see the, the, the software that people use. But we have a long list of tools people use uh, cool. to create different different type of songs. Yeah, that's um, interesting. And I, I would also almost, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, you know, from the psychological perspective of how this allows people to explore you know, creativity, right? It allows them, it, you know, I want, you know, part of this, as you can see, like the world building and the encounters, the, the character development, the, the music development is all parts of that, you know, creativity side of our brains where we get to explore ourselves and also explore the surroundings, you know, of our world, whether it's nature, nurture, right? You know, things coming out um, of how we think about things, you know, maybe like for myself, the way I was raised, you know, I may create a world different than how you may create a world. So I'd be interested into, into knowing what, how, you know, kind of how all that plays together. Um, obviously if the data is not there, it will be one day. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, also if, if you are curious about oh, how people who create, who use published modules divide their time. Yeah. Are creating their campaigns very different as you can see from the homebrew crew uh, because well they, they spend about part of their time learning about the world reading about the world because mm -hmm. it's free for them and then they spend about 15 percent of the time each on map creation and character creation because those are also created for them usually yeah. um, so they spend majority of their time on mapping up the encounter of the like understanding what's next for their players right so because it's a module, because they have to, you know, just looking at the data here, the encounter is taking up 43.1% of their time because they have to prepare that encounter based upon what the module is saying, really. At the end of the day, it's what's the module dictating, you know, environment-wise, you know, let's take Curse of Strahd if you haven't played that, you know, it's the goth, it's the very famous goth horror interpretation of, um, you know, straw, uh, you know, the, the whole, that whole thing from older editions, um, you have to learn the environment. So, and well, you know, which I think also helps with building that encounter. So it's quite interesting. And would the data say, correct me if I'm wrong, 
would, would the data say that because it's a module and maybe that person, that DM is not used to it, they're focusing more on the world building, they're focusing more on the encounter versus um, if, some, if a player were to, you know, take a, a step in a different direction, maybe they're kind of limited to the amount of impromptu um, reactions or responses that they can have. Is that something, would that be correct in saying that? Um, I think so, in certain, to a certain extent. But I, I, we, what we also found is that people who use uh, modules, often mm -hmm. they don't just use modules. They also improvise. Okay. They also change things if needed too. A lot of people feel like they can do that and they're willing to do that. Again, it depends on the personality of the DM, like how closely do they want to follow the module. But mm -hmm. we do, when we interview people, as, like a lot of people, do say that they, they find that they have to change things up in a game, yeah. Gotcha, okay. That's very interesting. And um, I would even, and actually it's funny that you bring up this next slide about, you know, your, like dream maps and whatnot. Yeah. Have you noticed if people have said in a perfect world, let's say the, you know, removing the, barring the variables of money and time and whatever, is there one specific thing or several specific things that DMs and players wish they would have? Like what would be their almost prized possession, so to speak? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then this brings exactly kind of what we talked about. Like what's your ultimate dream? Like, mm -hmm. right? So in terms of map, what people really want is we found that uh, DM player really want a more beautiful and detailed representation of the terrain. Okay. And then kind of a diversified representation of the, the culture and then the world they're in, right? And then like they want interactive landmarks. They want uh, more players to be able to visualize the world in 3D. That's being mentioned a lot. It's three dimension. Um, because a lot of the tools we're using right now, online tools, collaborative tools, are still very 2D dimensional. Mm. Like two-dimensional right so we what we want is to really enhance the narrative experience but what uh the dnd community doesn't want is that to take away the imaginative play and magic of the theater of the man they don't want things to be too automated so they don't want like the encounters to be all automated and they they're not you know doing anything or they, they want the idea to like they, they still want to be imaginative they still want to do the theater of the man mm -hmm. so that's why uh we found that the most interesting things people mention is 3d beautiful detailed auto-generated some like to a certain extent but not completely mm -hmm. scalable and interactive are, are the keywords and mm -hmm. um uh do you want to talk about like the the top few numbers of that? <laughs> the top few numbers of the, the beautiful 3D environment and the keeping track of the character parts of it. I'm so sorry, Joanna. Um, yeah, I can talk about it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I was just saying that like uh, we found that the, the another piece of the information people wanted is that. Uh, to be able to track the character and NPC movement. Okay. And then oh, okay. That's where you were going with that. Keep track of the distance between places. And then uh, to be having like interactive in what way is that the model map can, can cover and reveal object, can see people from 
sites, like uh, mm. what's my character sites of view. Um, but overall, people want kind of like a fancy video game play experience, but on yeah. the tabletop. So what that really brought down is that people want some kind of futuristic technology, right? That kind of 3D, like augmented reality. If you I was like, just... Yep, I was yeah. just going to say and think, and I actually spoke about this before, augmented reality and, you know, virtual reality later in the future is going to play a big part in tabletop gaming. There's already companies that are making augmented reality part of the day, of the D&D experience. It's mm -hmm. just in development right now. And I'm glad you brought that up. I really do because I've been preaching it for a long time. So Great. Um, yeah, I think you will be interested in uh, kind of what our proposed solution is based on everybody's research for for the next technology dnd technology okay uh, is that something you can reveal in the episode or is that do you have to kind of talk about that off because i'm off screen i don't mind it doesn't you don't have to talk about it now if you don't feel comfortable yeah let's talk about off screen but i think you you'd be interested in that yeah exclusive content y'all sorry in the audience i'm sorry but <laughs> this is it is what it is. I'm not mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, you might be interested in how much people, how much money people spend. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, my wife and I have always, we've joked around about it saying that, you know, it, again, it's part of the hobby, right? You have to spend a certain amount, you know, whether it is D and D, whether it's, I mean, I don't know if you've compared like, um, like Warhammer, I know a lot of people spend money oh, yeah. on Warhammer. So I would actually like to know, and actually maybe I might not like to know, maybe my wall, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't want to, I don't want anything to be used against me. I just want to be like, Oh, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Rival might be able, you want to explain this? Yeah, no problem. Um, so, uh, what you, what you would see if you're, if you're watching this is we have like a curve that shows from beginner to serious hobbyist to old timer. And beginners spend um, roughly 80 to $300 per year on the okay. core books, dice, and map tools. Um, more experienced players or serious hobbyists will spend probably about 300 to $2,000 per year on different conventions, subscriptions, merchandise, dice collections, and miniature collections. And then the curve starts to go down with like old timers spending roughly about 400. And then there's this category of professional DMs who spend less because they have already accumulated enough supply over the years and they mostly pay for subscription tools. Um, and then we have like an outlier here on our curve mm -hmm. um, that, you know, certain artists um, spend, you know, $20,000 a year. Wow. But um, again, those are outliers. Do you think that the old timer in, in the sense has the same kind of, you could put them in the same demographic as the professional DMs because they've been playing for so long, they've accumulated a certain collection or is that, would that be wrong in saying that? No, I think definitely that, that would be um, accurate in saying that. And I think Joanna has something she wants to add here. So I will <laughs> let her add. Okay. Um, yeah, even even if you're a new professional DM, you suddenly start to spend just a bit more uh, before in per if you're doing it in person. 
But now the trend after COVID is a lot of people are turning, becoming a professional DM in a whole digital like situation, right? Mm-hmm. So well, they they realize that they they don't need to. Oh my, sorry, my background. There's some <laughs> uh, noise. Uh, no so worries. they realize that they don't really need to spend that much money. Um, if, even if they want to become a professional DM, is that they can just mostly pay for subscriptions for the import, important tools. And then that kind of lowered down their spending a bit. So, okay. we, yeah, so I do feel it, it, there is a difference between if you become a professional DM before COVID or after COVID, there's a different curve of uh, accumulation of miniatures and uh, the physical stuff that people have accumulated over the years, right? So that's where and people, a lot of people talk about going to conventions which yeah. is uh, another kind of like science, which was, is not included in this chart. It's convention, going yeah. to the convention itself, and then uh, the plane ticket, travel tickets are not included. It's only about spending on the merchandise. Uh, so if you do include conventions, uh, the spending will be much higher for a lot of people. For sure. And I mean, I know part of, if there is one thing I do love to purchase, and a lot of my audience knows this, it's like miniatures. Like that is my... That is my weakness. So I could def. I know I've definitely spent. I mean, on miniatures alone, minimum three, four hundred over time, just building the collection and giving it to friends. You know, you know that's part one of the best parts about the hobby is saying, "Hey, like check this out." Here, like or hey, you know, you know, have this to start your collection. But that's still miniatures being you know purchased. So. I would even say that for myself, like, you know, I, I'm not a professional DM or anything like that, but I, I can see where that spending starts to accumulate in a way where it's almost, it's almost gets to the point where, and I, I laugh at this because again, my wife and I, you know, she knows that this is the hobby. This is what I love to do, you know, and it, it's almost like have, and I guess this is my next question have you noticed with professional DMs, is there a point in time where professional DMs are making a profit to an extent where the things that they pay for are almost, you know, it's paying for itself, so to speak? Yeah, definitely. I mean, we interview people who their sole income is from DMing. Gotcha. Okay. So definitely they, they make enough profit to pay their mortgages and do different things. So yeah, so so it really it, it really depends, you know. Like it's it's kind of like uh, as a hobby, it's like how much do you want to spend into this hobby. But sure. when you're running a business, it's a bit different. It's like how much is this business spending? How much of this is a still a hobby? So, For sure. Yeah. For sure, because if, 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 if you are running this as a business, obviously, like you have business expenses that you will report and that you will, you know, that will be determined at, at some point or the other. And what I noticed is that just because I, I, I know a couple of professional DMs, I don't know too many. Again, I'm, I would say I do this purely as a hobby. So whatever I purchase is definitely 100% hobby, you know, inspired, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of professional DMs will, and I'm not going to say who, but they'll write this off, right? Because it's a professional expense yeah. and it's a business expense. And, the, and it almost gets to the point where the attitude changes a little bit 
because it's more of instead of buying descent into Avernus or um, I believe that's how it's pronounced. I don't remember. Um, instead of buying that new module and the new minis because it's exciting, it's no, we're actually, my players want to run, want me to run this for them. So it's almost like, you know, the, the mentality shifts. I don't know if that, you know, maybe that's just, um, a, you know, me witnessing something that's a little bit odd um, in, you know, in, in regards to like psychological behaviors, but I don't know. I, I don't know if that's something that y'all have caught. Yeah, we also interviewed DM that um, that's so established that they got sponsors, right? So yeah. there, there are like publishing companies that just gave them books for free because they're established, right? So there's all different levels and different kinds of uh, DMs at different places. So um, it's it's very difficult to categorize, again, to categorize publishers sure. all into one category. So I think that's another thing that we in the future we'd like to look into is how do people do this professionally and then what different types of like mentality what type of science they're thinking in their heads but but like talking about you know like i buy a lot of dice and then some of the because i i'm a uh i make dice jewelry so yep. dice is needed right so i do right definitely can i can write some of the dice off for sure my, for sure so, but I think to me, it's still very exciting. Maybe dice is different, miniature is different, but I, I feel like it's still very exciting every time I, I buy dice. Uh, you know, like, uh, unless we, I, I have, sometimes I do have to buy those Bach ones that like just hundreds of dice all yeah. at the same time, because then those ones are less exciting than the individual ones I picked out for. For, for sure. It, it could be almost that human connection, right? That we have when we purchase something, we, we have that ownership over it. And, you know, I would even go to say as, you know, we all know the tabletop gaming industry is like a 7.2 or seven something billion dollar industry. And I think they're estimating by 2024, it's going to be, they're going to add a 5.4 billion more dollars to that industry. So when I, when I hear about, um, when I hear about people getting endorsements, right. And sponsorships and all this other stuff. I'm not surprised because we see it with Instagram influencers, right? And with social media influencers in that particular hobby or in that particular lifestyle, right? There are companies who will pay 30,000 for product placement and it's cheaper to do that than a commercial. Why not the same thing in a tabletop gaming industry when you have individuals like Critical Role? Um, you know, I, 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 I don't personally, I would love to see data on this, but I know Critical Role played a huge part in some of my friends who got into Dungeons and Dragons. And having someone like the Critical Role cast given a product placement, I mean, we know that, you know, certain companies support them, but imagine if like Coca-Cola had a product placement and paid them 50,000 to 100,000 and that, that would be nothing because they could afford that. That's kind of how I see the future of tabletop gaming is you know, not only is that yearly spending, I don't know if it's going to go up or down. Cause again, my background, my professional background is technology. Um, but I also have an MBA. Like I have, you know, my, I kind of start to think from a business perspective of, Hey, you know what, there, there's a huge opportunity in the tabletop gaming industry, not only to be professional DMS, but to be professional content creators in the industry. So yeah, definitely. we, we interview like, um, 
like D&D like cartographers or maps, like, you know, map builders and people who create draws characters or character, um, like, you know, the creation, like mm -hmm. all those people, they, they do have a business, viable business in the tabletop gaming section, just doing very different things, something you may not even think of, like, like I, you may not think like doing D20 dice cases <laughs> will help you build a side business, but it does. So like there's all this different kind of little things people build and make in the tabletop. It's not just like the game itself, but like the merchandise related to it and then mm -hmm. like everything, right? So it's definitely a huge industry and uh, the sponsorship is definitely possible. And I definitely see this trend of the tabletop gaming becoming more important in the society, especially after COVID. But a yeah. lot of people have nothing to do but to play tabletop games at home. For sure. And imagine all the friends that people are making right now playing online games with people they've never physically met, right? Probably when we, when we were children, we all kind of thought, you know, maybe our parents, I know my parents, you know, I'm a son of refugees, right? And, and of those who immigrated from another country. And my parents always said, well, be careful of who you meet online and all that other stuff. And now it's very commonplace to meet some of my closest friends online. So I wonder what that trend is going to look like post COVID of, you know, I, again, I'm trying to see the positive and everything of maybe there's a continuation of online gaming. Like you said, in the beginning, there's going to be that hybrid where people are going to come back to, you know, play together and they're going to meet their friends in person that they've been playing online and they're going to continue playing online. I think like we interviewed someone who um, really is invested in like creating communities for people mm. that might not otherwise have them yeah. to play in. And, you know, something that he was doing pre COVID was that he would go to the local game store and like, you know, just talk to anyone um, and try to like, you know, get people that otherwise wouldn't necessarily have like a friend group to play with. He was in a university town. Um, and so like often like to kind of scoop people up and something that he was struggling with, with um, moving to online play was how do you find those outlier people um, and like get them involved in the game. And so there was talk about, you know, how can we harness the the, you know, the officialness and the power that like game stores have to include them in this online revolution, so to speak, of like moving to online play, but keeping them involved so that those stores don't die out. And also mm -hmm. they can help facilitate um, additional games for those people that are kind of, you know, stuck without a game. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a very interesting approach and a, a good concern in terms of accessibility of the game for people. Um, and something to note too about accessibility in general is like we spoke to people all over the world. And, you know, it came up a couple of times that like some of the reasons that they use certain technologies has to do with the accessibility of those tools and the reliability of their internet connectivity and all of those things. And so I think that's going to be something that if we stay with this trend of like mostly being online, um, that's going to become a bigger consideration, I think, as we move forward is the accessibility component. Interesting. Because, and, I, and you mentioned something about, <clears throat> or from what I interpreted, was sustaining the community in person and online, right? 
I think that because we are human and we desire that human interaction, I mean, I'll be honest, I can't wait to play in person again, but I also have seen a huge benefit from playing online because I'm getting to play with people I would normally not play with. So I wonder, you know, and you mentioned the local game store, the local game store, at least for me, and I don't know if your data supports this or if you have any data just yet, but the local game store for me was the hub. It was the place where growing up, you could be yourself. You could, it was the one place that was like the, the, the neutral zone. It didn't matter who you were, what your background was, right? But you would go there to collectively play games and talk about nerdy things and to talk about the culture within the gaming community or the comic book community or whatever it may be. So do you, does your data support whether or not like that is something that people still desire or because of the online resurgence is, is the online community taking over the physical, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, we don't have like, you know, specific data for that. Um, but, uh, again, that's something that's very interesting and we can definitely look into it in the future. Mm -hmm. Uh, but what I do feel is that, uh, just personally, I feel that we should like, um, the, the personal connection, like those hubs, those physical places, are definitely important still for mm-hmm. a lot of people. But I do think uh, the online really expanded that physical space, mm-hmm. right? Because right. I, I talked to a lot of people even like living in a very rural area, for example. Yeah. They would usually drive two hours to, to get to that hub place. Wow. Place. Yeah, and then we talked to people in Ireland, Germany, like Germany, diff- all different type of places right and then feel like that distance is one of the issue why like they found so isolated and not being able to connect and then giving the online community it really helped them to access to people that they would never thought they would have just being at home being mm-hmm. online so i think that's a definitely a benefit of the online community if i, I see the online community being an extension of the physical space rather than replacing it I I honestly, I I thank you for saying it that way, because I I don't see a problem with both, right? We're all technologists. I've stated it before. We know that there is a, there is, we we always, I I believe as technologists, we always try to blend um, technology and human interaction, right? The technology should enhance human interaction. And I think in this case, we're seeing a great example of that. Um, now, you know, moving along from that, has, has your data been showing any benefits of D and D and yeah, actually, you know, um, you read my mind, so there, <laughs> I don't even need to ask. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, my, my next, or like next slide that here is about like what people really discuss, but like what, what makes a game session satisfying for mm-hmm. D and D players. Right. And then, uh, here, we found that like number one reason is that when everyone feels the same emotion at the same time, mm-hmm. that's what makes the game most satisfying for a lot of people is, is that um, we're both feeling feared. We're both feeling excited. We're both feeling, ah, oh, 
like all that like yeah. all that moment like you know you feel like no or laughing at each other's mistakes all mm-hmm. those like feeling the same feeling at the same time that's the height of the human connection people felt okay. uh, and then that's what really makes the dnd so satisfying is that when we're in an imaginative world and we're not necessarily going out to that those adventures but we are we are yeah. feeling those like journey so that that's really what what's makes the dnd game so satisfying and so positive about the game and then um another thing is like being memorable right like you know there's some life story you keep you will keep talk about it after years and the same as the dnd sessions they're not real life experiences but people still talk about it years after it happened uh and then uh what we found very interesting that major failures are more memorable than major wins. Like you may, you may together sl- slide, <laughs> like you may together slay that dragon, but then uh, when it comes to remembering is how you tripped right before you, you, you know, you fired something. It's, it's all those like failures that people remembered more and laughed more uh, years later. Wow, that's, it's blowing my mind because I really, you know, I've, you know, I knew Joe Manganello said something one time where he said, you know, I don't, we don't talk about it as if, oh, my character did this. When you speak about the past, it's, oh, I remember when we did this, right? There's that, om- that ownership. And it, it, it always hit me that, yeah, you know, we talk about it like that, but I never thought that we would think about our failures more. Um, is there a reason why we're thinking more of our failures versus like the, the major wins, so to speak? I think that ties in well to like our third point, which is that um, another thing that makes the game so satisfying is this element of surprise. So I think oftentimes because we're not necessarily expecting those failures, um, those become unexpected like player actions in a way Mm. ties in there. Um, And then also that there's unexpected plot twists as a result maybe of those failures. But um, on its own, like this was something brought up time and time again was that the surprise exists for both the players and the DM. And both of those things um, make a satisfying game session overall for those that are DMs and those other players. Interesting. That's really, that's really neat. And again, my, I apologize, because like what I'm trying to express like I'm just kind of astounded really by this data because I feel like this is everything that I've gone through personally, right? You know, as a player, as a DM, I remember like having players do these unexpected, crazy feats. And I'm thinking to myself, and I still remember those years later. So like y'all, y'all are quantifying that right now and kind of making me feel like, oh, this is an actual thing. It's normal for me to be feeling this. Yeah, we got that reaction a lot when we were presenting the data because um, oftentimes we would have follow-up with those that we interviewed for people that were interested in seeing our results. Mm-hmm. And we just kept hearing over and over again, oh, so I'm normal. Oh, so like this fits me. And like it was just like so great to hear that like our data is very representative yes, um, it is. Of, of like what people are sensing and feeling, but they might not necessarily know how to express it specifically, but we've, you know, boiled all of it down because you have to understand that like Joanna has spent a crazy amount of time, primarily Joanna coding all of this data, which is qualitative and messy and trying to make sense of it all 
in a quantitative and wow. like valid way. Um, I mean, your aunt, she, Joanna, you're analyzing this data in such a way that has never really been done. Like, you know, it, this is something to let y'all know, I feel like exactly, you know, you know, Ravel, as you were saying, like, I feel normal. <laughs> like, I feel like, oh, I'm a normal person because I, I do feel this way. I have felt this way before. I mean, I still feel this way when I game. So I, I appreciate that. Just, you know, if I haven't said it before, I thank you for doing this because I think for a lot of people, you're doing, y'all are doing a huge service to the community, whether you realize it or not, this is a huge service in the sense that you're, you're going to make people feel like they're normal and you're giving them data of why they're feeling normal. That's so, I, don't know how, I don't know how over underrated normal is. Like I like my, my outskirt, but yeah, it definitely makes people feel more connected for sure. Yeah. Um, and it just reassured them um, that, you know, like, Hey, like I'm not the only person that feels this way or feels exactly. alone. Yeah. And I think that's like, what's key is that like, this is all about a sense of community. And I feel like this research is another opportunity to strengthen that sense of community and identity because mm -hmm. it is representative and it makes you just tie back to like, oh, wow, like I really have this in common with these other people, mm -hmm. um, yeah. which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Which, and again, I, I, you know, the sense of community is a big thing, right? The sense of community is a huge aspect of D&D &D and tabletop gaming. That is why we play as I feel at least is that we play because of that sense of community. We play yeah. to be in, in, you know, that's why, you know, things like CrossFit, right. For the, for the, for the athletic people out there, for the people that aren't, doesn't matter. But for those people who know what CrossFit, it's a community. A lot of people would say it's a community centered around this thing, this, you know, these, these movements and this um, almost philosophy. And it's kind of, I feel the same way about D and D. Um, it's a community of people of, um, you know, like-minded or not, it's a community of people who are pursuing this goal, this feeling, this, you know, thing. So it's, it's interesting that y'all are bringing that up too and quantifying that. Yeah. yeah, I think the thing we didn't quantify was like necessarily style of play, but we definitely looked at um, the functional, emotional, and social needs. Okay. Um, I don't know. Here. This is the last slide, <laughs> but uh, here, uh, Rival, you, you can you can start. <laughs> I know, I know. So, um, you know, like breaking down these needs, um, we see that functionally, you know, the key word here was beautiful. That people really wanted these beautiful, um, three D representations of their world, and they wanted something interactive that provided a sense of instant feedback and like real-time feedback and emotionally it was very important that they have a shared experience um, with those they consider friends and share that laughter and excitement and fear mm -hmm. um, and socially um, really be recognized as a contributor both to the game and to the people they were playing with mm -hmm. um, in some capacity and I think the social need here is something really to um, you know focus on here is that everyone wants to give back in some way or some shape or form. Mm -hmm. And that makes, it makes total sense because we as people, I feel whatever community you're in, but especially in D and D, you know, 
those that's you want to be recognized as part of the part of the group part of the tribe if you've heard of that um saying before and, and for the audience out there too like if you haven't there i know for myself there has been this movement of being a part of a tribe being part of a family unit and being recognized as a contributor i feel is one of the big parts i know that that's what I mean, deep down inside, that's probably one of the biggest motivators for me is, you know, to make an environment where people do feel recognized in that way. So this is all really interesting and good um, and great data, honestly. One question that I have, because I know um, a lot of folks may be kind of having this on their mind is when is this data gonna be published uh, to the public? When can people expect it or even, um, you know, kind of look forward to it? Is there a timeline? Yeah, uh, we're definitely hoping to get it out as soon as possible. We're kind mm -hmm. of working on making the data a little bit uh, prettier <laughs> to represent it, sure. to release it right now. Uh, but we're working on the website, we're working on a Patreon page so that people can get updated data as well, because we're keep doing this, we're continuing doing the, this research. This is not the end of the data, this is just beginning, right? So mm -hmm. there's so much more data we would like to collect and we would like to show. So uh, that's kind of one way we're hoping to do it. So I would say, um, I, I, would, I would definitely like um, talk, talk to you again in about a month, <laughs> hopefully yeah. we can that all down but uh you know like we're definitely working really hard to get this data to a stage that's a uh, for easy people to search and easy uh easy to look up well i'll make sure that there's links um any links that you want me to put in the description down below and everything like that i will definitely post it because i want people to be able to kind of continuously follow you all and and support the data and support you all doing this research however you can. So I know you mentioned Patreon, and I think a lot of people are familiar with Patreon and probably um, would feel more comfortable with that kind of seeing updates and whatnot. But is there any um, social media outlets that you all would um, want people to kind of follow you or invite them to follow you to see um, your data or to see even like, and like I said, I know Joanna, you make um, dice jewelry and whatnot. Um, so obviously, please, um, I will definitely put your um, account information down below so that people can buy some of that uh, jewelry and whatnot. But is there a place where people can kind of follow you more? Or is that Patreon going to be really the, the, the best point to, to follow you all? Yeah, we'll definitely also make an Instagram page that's still also undergoing. So a lot of things uh, are undergoing right now. Um, okay, perfect. I think definitely the best place to get in contact with us is through Joanna's Instagram because she is quite active in the community and has um, okay. established a following there. A lot of the people that we were able to reach was as a result of her standing in the community and her abilities. And so I think that like anytime we have an interesting finding, anytime we've, you know, um, polled people, a lot of the time it's been through um, her contacts and her Instagram. And so I think, you know, link to her. And then um, from there, we'll release information forthcoming when we create a separate Instagram and everything for the data. Okay. Um, so for so for the people in the audience that will be listening to this, um, primarily, what what would be uh, what's your Instagram handle? Yeah, it would be Raven and not like okay. a R 
R-I-B-B-O-N and uh, K-N-O-T. Awesome. So rib, so at Ribbon and Knot, um, yes. be sure to follow Joanna there. Um, not only for the for, for the um, jewelry and whatnot, but if you're really interested in this data and getting in contact with Joanna, I, I don't want to speak for you, Joanna, but I but just based upon what you were saying, I think you know any any messages or anything like that might be <laughs> might be reciprocated positively and whatnot. But also, y'all have been so cool and so awesome to meet with me and to just be on the podcast. I really appreciate it. So, folks out there listening, go follow um, Ribbon and Knot give support. And, and honestly, this is part of what the community is about, right? It's supporting one another. I really do look forward to having y'all on another, you know, at another time when um, obviously when you, when you've collected more, even more data, but even, you know, when you're ready to present and launch your Patreon, obviously y'all are always welcome, but folks, I appreciate your, your time. I appreciate folks in the audience listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Bearded Nerd podcast. We're on Apple podcast we are on um, Google, we're on Spotify, we're pretty much everywhere that you listen to podcasts. Um, Joanna, um, <clears throat> Ravel, do you have anything else to say before we head out? No, I think we've said it all. Thank you so much for having us. We really appreciate being here. Yeah, no. and we're continuing doing all research. So if you guys have, um, you know, experience, especially we're now looking for people who work in the gaming industry as well to give, me, give us some more insights about this research. So you can definitely reach out to me and uh, we'll chat. Yep, reach out to Ribbon and Knot. And again, whether you or you know someone who works in the gaming industry, right? That, that networking ability is gonna be very much appreciated, especially, you know, and I'm very passionate about this because this type of research is so important for the gaming community and for the public to know the benefits of the gaming community and of tabletop gaming in general. I mean, we've all kind of experienced, we, or we may have experienced some sort of negativity in our past, whether in the audience or personally, that having this type of knowledge is actually going to help change the future and for the future generations of gamers. So please, please, please support um, su support um, Joanna and Ravel with this with this data as much as you can. But anyway, thank you all for listening. Thank you, Joanna and Ravel. I really appreciate y'all being on. And as as always, folks, keep gaming. <laughs>